obstacles and barriers exist in our industry. I wasn't born into affluence. So some of these things didn't come natural to me. I really felt like I had a calling to change the face of the industry through the work that I was doing. Welcome to Beyond the Portfolio. I'm your host, Jim Edward. Today I'm joined by Desarte Yarnway, founder and managing director of Burknell Financial Group based out of San Francisco, California. Desarte's story shows how the RIA space gave him the freedom to blaze his own trail after initially not seeing a space for himself in the financial industry. After working at a smaller firm, a brokerage, and a large bank, Desarte realized it was time to look past obstacles and go his own way. Desarte, thanks so much for being here today. Jim, thank you so much for having me. We're excited to share your story on the podcast today. Could you start by giving us some background about your experience to let us know how you got started? I like to start with my parents. My parents are both immigrants from a small country in West Africa called Liberia. My dad came to the United States in the early 70s and my mom later in 1978, right before the rice riots in Liberia, which led to a 14 year period of civil wars. For me, I think that my parents were the epitome of what I do this for, right? I have a phrase that says onward to greatness, and I think they exuded that greatness on a day-to-day basis from them leaving Liberia, from them coming to America, kind of hustling and saving to buying their first house to give us the opportunity to do the things that we wanted to do. And while we weren't rich in resources, we were rich in love, we were rich in our values, we were rich in family time. And I think that kind of characterized, you know, my approach to life and my approach to, you know, my clients and everybody that I touch over the years. That's really awesome. I mean, considering that the title of this podcast is The Trailblazer, and even though that's referring to you, I think it's fair to say your parents were that as well. No, absolutely. And I think that it made me seem like this is my responsibility. I have this same responsibility to provide, protect, and, you know, make sure that there's peace in our house, right? So for me, I think my dad really was the one that trailblazed an attitude of gratefulness, hard work, and just being that servant leader that I pledge myself to be, not only in my personal life, but also with my business. So with that being said, I think my job as a financial advisor is for people like that, that want to provide and be better for their families, no matter what the circumstances is, and give them the tools and resources, right, to be able to do that. So I think about it in a way like if I was an advisor for my mom and dad, what would I tell them? What were they missing? What memo did they not get? And that's my motivation on a day-to-day basis. Can we hear a little more about how you got to the point where you are today? How did you end up in this position to be able to help out people like your parents? Yeah, absolutely. My childhood was interesting, right? So we got into this house, right? We had all of our family from Liberia come due to the war. I'm sharing beds with my cousins and the neighborhood obviously was rough. So I played football as like a coping mechanism and a way to stay out of trouble. My playing football led me to the University of California, Berkeley. I played there uh, all four years in school got my degree, but I had a series of injuries that led me to not pursue a professional career in football. So at that time, I'm like, hey, I need to figure this out. I'm ambitious. I want to make sure that I'm doing something productive and more than anything to make my father and my family proud, right? So I applied to like 265 jobs. And when I look on LinkedIn today, I can still see all of the applications that I applied for at the time. So in doing so, I decided to take an offer to a financial services firm, an independent firm. And I got there. I was one of two black men in this maybe over 5,000 employee firm. And I saw there that we missed the memo. That's as easy as I can put it. Like we, not a specific race, color, creed, 
demographic, sexual orientation, but there's a group of people that were not affluent enough to receive the services, right, that was offered at these high-level firms. And that was very intriguing to me, taking me back to my family. Like, why can't we get these services? Why can't we have this information? We missed the memo. So as I'm working on these high-dollar accounts, I'm talking tens of millions of dollars, I see that these people aren't any better, right? They aren't any smarter. They just have this information that allows them to make educated decisions. So I charge myself with that duty to say, well, hey, if they're not going to give us the memo, I'm going to be responsible for giving the memo to the people who may have missed it or just is neglected in this space. And that's what I did. Wow. That's great. So once you came to that realization, what did you do next? So I went through that firm, got the experience, got the information that I felt like I needed at the time. I went to another firm. I got my licenses. I got life and health license in all 50 states. And then I produced very, 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 very well at that firm. And I kind of got my business, quote unquote, acquired, or I just shifted to a bank. So as I'm at the bank, I'm managing $100 million. I'm in D.C. and I'm in New York, right? And I'm playing ball at a high level, if you will, (laughs) right? So I'm playing ball at a high level. And I just found myself to be very unsatisfied. So while in the eyes of, say, my mom, right, who's, again, an immigrant who came to give us the opportunity she felt fulfilled in seeing her son do this, right? Like, you did it. This is why we came here, right? But I felt like it wasn't enough, and I wasn't sticking to the objective of being able to give people like me, people like her, people like our uncles, cousins, aunties, and everybody that I grew up with the information that they needed to create this multi-generational wealth that I know they yearned after. Yeah. So you're not settling for this is the way it has to be. Absolutely. And I will say that for me, until that point, I thought I was doing big things, right? (laughs) I thought I'm 24 at the time. I'm managing $100 million at a reputable institution. I got the opportunity to stay in, you know, these nice places in New York and seemingly live well. But a couple of things happened in that time period that really allowed me to see just how finite our time was on earth, okay? First, my dad passed away in 2003. So I've always had this thing in my mind that says like, hey, while you're here, you're going to have to create a legacy, right? In which people will respect and honor you even when you're gone from earth physically, right? And they used to call my dad the godfather in a sense that he was always looking after people, always the guy, right? If you needed something, he would take off his shirt and give it to you. You know, if you were coming from Liberia, you need a place to stay, you need food, you need a couple bucks, he was the guy to give it to you. So I saw that, and to this day, when people see me, they call me the Godfather Jr. because of his legacy, right? So now, in 2015, when I'm at the bank, I had a tragic accident. My brother passed away unexpectedly. He was 27 years old. So you can imagine me being 24, he's 27, my dad passing away. I have this thing in my mind, like, am I next? Like, you know what I mean? This really conceptualizes the finite nature of life. Like everybody has a time, you know? So with that being said, I'm in the bank making money, I'm managing money. But was that enough? Was that enough for me to say, you know, I did it. You did well, my good and faithful servant. And I don't think it was. I would see the guys that was at the bank 30 years and I would see what they would do at the end of the week. Like, hey, I got to go have some whiskey. I'm going to, you know, (laughs) take the long route home. And I didn't want to live my life like that. So that was really the thing that pushed me over the edge, in addition to the responsibility that I felt like I had to serve communities that were overlooked. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for sharing that. I imagine your dad's inspiration has also helped you when you faced obstacles or challenges. Yeah. 
obstacles and barriers exist in our industry. Clearly, I wasn't born into affluence. So some of these things didn't come natural to me. When you're trying to survive, you do the things that allow you to survive, right? Mm -hmm. And that was kind of like my mindset at the time. Like, I got to do whatever I have to do to live another day. And I don't think our parents or my parents, I can only speak for my parents, really knew anything else because they came from a place where, you know, it's like a cash-based society. You go, you make your market, you you sell stuff, you know, to mm-hmm. put yourself to school, whatever the case is. So naturally, when you come to the States, you kind of think the same thing. But I think that your state of mind or your thinking requires something different here to be a lot more forward thinking and saying, hey, if I invest this or buy that in 10 years, it's going to do this for me, right? Now, that's the first thing, just the learning curve, learning investments, learning how economics worked was probably one of the bigger obstacles, okay? Now, the second one for me would probably just be just being the only one, quote unquote, in this firm, right? I was literally the go-to when it came to everything that had to do with minorities. And with that being said, that's a lot of pressure on any person in a firm to be that subject matter expert about everything black or everything that has to do with poverty or everything that has to do with the things that most people did not want to talk about. So that was an obstacle as well. And then making mistakes. I think that we all make mistakes professionally, but because you're the only one, sometimes these mistakes are amplified. And that was something that really affected my confidence at the firm and made me feel like I didn't belong. At the end of the day, I think that whether you're working uh, at an independent firm, working for yourself, or working at a large firm like I was, you want to feel supported by somebody, right? Sure. And that was a big obstacle for me as well. It seems like you take these experiences as motivation to continue your own path. You don't you don't let these obstacles bog you down. You use them or see them as opportunities for change. Yeah, for sure. I, I just want to say first, though, I feel like motivation is fleeting, right? So motivation by itself isn't enough. So while I was motivated, quote unquote, to do this. When you're motivated to do something, it doesn't last past the goal being reached. So I'll give an example. If you're motivated to lose 10 pounds, right? Once you get to eight, nine, 10 pounds, your motivation goes away, right? So while I had this experience where, you know, I was motivated to kind of give this information back, it was really, really, really deeper than that. I really felt like I had a calling to change the face of the industry through the work that I was doing, right? Through the perspective that I had, through the voice that I had and just everything that I was doing. So I think it stretches way further past motivation because motivation is fleeting. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. Yeah. So that was my perspective. Now, what I tell everybody is that mental accounting was big for me. So at all of these places, I took these lessons, right? And I said that I'm going to take the best things that I've learned here, And try to incorporate them in my firm, number one. Number two, I'm going to make sure that no one feels like they don't belong if they work for Burknell, work with Burknell. We're going to create a culture that is so uh, warm and energetic that you're going to wish that you work for us. You're going to wish that you work with us. And number three, our firm infrastructure is going to be in a way that we're going to be able to serve the masses, right? You know, as well as Anyone that is knowledgeable about financial services, if you don't have a million dollars in most places, they're going to be like, hey, maybe you should read a book. Right. And that's not how it should be. If people need help to lose weight, if people need help in their you know, relationships for counseling, if people need tutors for math, you know, whatever the case is, why shouldn't no matter what level you are, why shouldn't you have that same help as it pertains to your life finances? Right. Your life goals. So I took 
all of these things with a deeply rooted belief that it was my calling to create Burknell Financial Group. So you felt this calling, but when did you really know that the timing was right for you to start off on your own? When did I know the timing was right? Honestly, I felt like I knew the timing was right when I was uncomfortable going into work every day. I was uncomfortable having these conversations with people that weren't tapping into the essence of their goals. I was uncomfortable with that. I'd reached this maximum level of uncomfort, <laughs> which is mm. which sounds counterintuitive, right? Because most people want to feel comfortable with the next step. You know, they want to feel comfortable. Like, oh, yeah, I've done X, Y, and Z. Check off the box. Check off the box. I'm ready now to do this, right? And I think that I was just so uncomfortable sitting in the seat at the bank, so uncomfortable with everything that I saw throughout the course of the industry that I was like, now's the time. Because you're not going to be able to fulfill the duty or your obligation if you don't create it yourself. What was it like actually getting around to forming your own business? I think that people glamorize entrepreneurship, and I'm not that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I am not the guy to glamorize you know, entrepreneurship. It's not pretty, especially in the early stages. You have to get your hands dirty, and you have to do the work. And for me, I didn't know what the work required at the time. I just knew that I was capable, right, of doing this. I knew that I had enough information to to lead to the the fact that, you know, this would work if I stuck to it, right? So I didn't know exactly what it required, but whatever it did require, I knew that I was committed to doing that. I was just committed to doing whatever it took to make sure that this thing would have legs and would be able to walk on its own. Yeah, for sure. Were there uh, moments of doubt that you felt in this time? For sure. <laughs> Moment, <laughs> you know, it, it's I just feel blessed to be able to to, to laugh about it now, but of course there's moments of doubts, right? I think that whenever you're transcending levels and, you know, going higher, you're going to doubt yourself because it's uncharted territory, you know? So I had these moments of doubt. I'll tell you one, we just opened our doors January 4th, 2016. So in the beginning stages of our business, we would get paid quarterly. So I'm like, yeah, we're opening accounts. So at the end of the quarter, I was super excited to get our check. Like, okay, we're going to get paid, right? This is our own business. We're like our own bosses, right? And I kept calling the custodian because we hadn't got paid. It was like mid-April at this point. I'm like, this doesn't make sense. They said they would pay us within like almost a week of us, you know, finishing out the quarter. So the custodian's like, hey, we'll send you the check. We're processing everything. We'll send you the check. Another week goes by and I call him again, like, hey, where's the check? Oh, don't worry, we'll send it to you. Now, May rolls around and we still haven't been paid. So I get on the phone and I call the custodian. And I'm like, hey, we haven't been paid. So the custodian is like, oh, you know what? The paper that we print the check on costs more than the amount that you made for the quarter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Right. And at that point, I was like, wow, I just really worked super hard. I've been blogging. I've been out in D.C. at everybody's happy hour, you know, exchanging my card. I've invested money in the business and the paper costs more than the check. So the check itself was seven dollars and twenty nine cents. And I remember calling my mom, just talking to her like, hey, mom, I don't know if this is a good idea anymore. Seven dollars and twenty nine cents is what I made for the quarter. This is crazy. Right. And my mom took a deep breath on the phone and she was like, D, keep at it. In five years, you'll be proud that you didn't quit. And then she proceeds to say, don't cast a check because I'm going to frame it for you. And in five years, I'm going to give it to you. 
And you know what I did? I took a picture of that check and I cashed it. <laughs> <laughs> I took a picture of that check and I cashed it electronically, but then I sent her the check, right? I'm on mm-hmm. maybe like four and a half years now. January 4th, 2021 will be my fifth year. And I can say as of today that everything that she said was correct. You know what I mean? I feel so grateful to sacrifice, to be able to do those things, right? To be patient enough to watch the business mature. And I do not have any doubts about how high and far it'll go in the next, you know, however many years. Has there been a moment when you thought to yourself, hey, maybe this is actually all going to work out? A couple of years ago, I wrote this thing in my journal and it said, success leaves fingerprints, right? So what I was saying in that journal is like, I think at that point I had just signed a book deal with one of the larger independent publishers. When I signed that book deal, success leaves fingerprints was like what was going through my brain, right? So that was the moment that really shifted it off for me because the book came out. I got Pete Nigerian from CNBC to write the foreword. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. Like that was the pinnacle at that point, right? To be like, did this happen? And I truly believe that as I mature as a business owner, as I've started multiple businesses, success leaves fingerprints. We just got 40 under 40 via Investment News and Financial Advisor Magazine, eight top young advisors to watch. All of these things are mile markers of success saying, hey, you're going in the right direction. Does that make sense? Totally. And I think that inversely, failure has fingerprints too. So if something is not working, it's going to be clear as day to be like, hey, this is not working. Maybe you should try something else, right? Or you should change your approach as it pertains to that. And that's with anything. That's with a business. That's with a significant other. That's with literally anything that you can imagine. So for me, that was the moment that really redirected my mind and said, hey, well, the dollars might not necessarily be where you need them to be right now, but hey, you're on your way. You're going in the right direction. It's important for all RIA firms to have candid conversations about privilege and inequality. For real change to happen, it's important to create an open dialogue in a safe environment. To learn tips for ways to encourage these conversations at your firm, visit TDAI.com. So Desarte, what resources do you think would help more people succeed in this industry? Yeah, so as it pertains to just being in this financial services industry, I think that there needs to be system in place that allows advisors who, like me, are motivated and inspired and are deeply, intrinsically like, do we really want to do this thing? So for me, I know that one of the pain points for starting Bricknell was just finding a custodian that was willing to take me as a scratch starter, essentially, right? As I called around, many of these custodians needed 10, 15 million dollars in AUM just for me to be onboarded. And for somebody like that doesn't make sense, right? I'm a young guy, number one. There is a market for, you know, clients that would work with me, but did I have 15 million dollars in AUM at the time? No, I did not, right? So that's automatically going to cut out a huge demographic of folks from working in the industry or forcing them to work with a bank or work with an independent IRA like the one that I was in. And I don't think that's fair. I think secondly, I think that there needs to be a community for advisors of color so they can feel like they have that support, have that camaraderie, right? And the resources that they need to be successful. Here in the financial services industry, we see like women in finance that is having a burgeoning uh, community starting up. We have XYPN for millennials. I think that needs to be something because a lot of the times, if you don't see it, you don't know if you can be it. 
And I think that there's a trickle down effect when you have visible members like women in finance, right, that are doing really well, that are supporting each other, that are enjoying their experience for other young women to come into industry and say that I can be a part of this. Right. So I think that that needs to be something that happens as well. And I think just sponsoring more black advisors and advisors of color to be CFPs. Right. Or at least getting that education so they can have that knowledge to be able to go back and help their communities. So you're kind of saying that we need to turn the old model on its head. Yeah, I think that it's deeply embedded in my firm's infrastructure. We have the private client group that serves that high net worth community, but we also have something called the Wealth Bridge Group, right? Which is essentially saying, hey, you might be a young professional, you might be a growing family, you might be getting married or having your first kid, or you simply might be somebody who just started too late, right? We have a home for you. And hopefully by working with us, we can bridge the gap into that private client group that would allow you to do so much more for your family and create this multi-generational wealth creation. That's awesome. What advice would you give to the next generation of people looking to become financial advisors? That's a tough one because I think the (laughs) industry is changing so fast, right? I think every day there's a new idea about what the industry should be, how advisors should serve their clients. But ultimately, I think that it starts with being yourself because there's a demographic that needs your voice, number one. So I would encourage people to own their voice. I think that for me, I was so intimidated by big finance being an independent firm owner, I was trying to sound like everybody else. You know, so once I started to talk and be and walk like myself, I saw that naturally the clients who resonated with that were attracted to Burknell Financial Group. So that's number one. I would encourage people to be independent if they can. You have more freedom. Again, you get to own your voice and you get to tailor your business in a way that allows you to work with the demographic and people that you really like and love. And then what's your why? Again, I think that it has to be within you. You have to really own that why. Stick to that even in the rough days. Did you find yourself able to stick to your own plan? My plan essentially was to say, hey, I'm going to create a space and place where people who are underserved can have a home. So essentially, I was this Robin Hood, right, when I wanted to take the information from the rich and give it to the people that to me needed it the most. So I had to ask myself a few hard questions, like what mark are you trying to make in this industry? What is your legacy gonna be, right? Why do you want to help this specific demographic? And the more that I matriculate onward and upward in this industry, I feel like this was the best thing that I could have done, right? And my plan continues to evolve in a way that continues to deeply serve this group continues to deeply serve these individuals. One of our latest iterations of this is creating something called the Burknell Town Halls. Every other month, I have a speaker that comes to talk to our clients exclusively about wealth creation, about building their best lives, right? Professional athletes, New York Times bestsellers, right? Just giving them this perspective that otherwise would be reserved for those who are super affluent, right? And I don't think that should just be reserved for them. So we're trying our best to continue to foster this community and continue to change the lives of the people that we work with. You know, how can people encourage candid conversations with the financial advising industry? What types of discussions do you wish more people were having? I think that in the financial advisor community, we need to define what it means to be an advisor, right? And what what does that mean? Seriously, because I think that for me, it means to be a servant leader to help people reach their financial goals. Right. And when you say a servant leader, that means that the words are positioned in that way intentionally. Right. Because first you have to serve and then you have to lead your clients in the direction 
that they need to go, right? It's kind of almost saving them from themselves sometimes that they have to go to manifest their goals. So I think that we need as a community to define what that is. Because when you see financial advisor, if you Google it or if you if you go on LinkedIn looking for one, somebody might be a pure insurance salesman. Another one might be, you know, an IRA. Uh, another one might be just a coach, right? So we need to really define what it means in detail so we can have this uniformity within our industry. And what would inclusivity in the financial services industry look like for you? Yeah, I think that we need to talk about inclusivity in terms of the clients we serve, right? Because again, for me, the motivation there was just saying, hey, well, these people might not be millionaires, but they do need the help. They do need the information, right? So how can we as an industry continue to open up the gates so that we can feel like we're impacting more lives? I think that if we only focus on the millionaires, the multimillionaires, we obviously are going to have a wealth gap and divide here, right? We have a part to play in it as the industry, right? But if we open up this door to allow this information, these resources and the access to other communities, perhaps we do our part in trying to close that wealth gap and giving people the chance to create something beautiful for themselves and their families, right? And I think that's something that we need to do. That can be done through, again, diversifying the advisors that we have here. I don't know the numbers offhand, but there's a really low number of diverse advisors in the industry. So it's hard for people to go get the help when they don't see anybody like them offering it. Right. Mm -hmm. And that can be done by just continually being consistent in these communities. Right. To make sure that we're being servants. And sometimes you have to go there versus having them come to you. I think we do it for every other community. Why can't we open that floodgate and widen it a little more? Do you think there's progress being made here? I think that people are listening, right? I think that the industry is doing a good job at facilitating or trying to facilitate the conversations so we can create change. But I do think that there's two types of changes that a person can make. Number one is a behavioral change. And that's just saying like, hey, well, you have a concern, we're gonna change our behavior, right? So if your kid isn't taking out the trash and you're like, hey, you need to take out the trash, they begin to take out the trash, but they hate it at all at the same time, right? It's like, I hate doing this, but I have to do it or else I won't get in trouble. I think that's the stage that we are in with the industry as it pertains to conversations concerning diversity and inclusion. Now, the second level of change is a heart change. A heart change is when somebody deeply internalizes the need for this. And I don't think that we've got there yet. Because once you make this change of heart, the duties or the tasks that you're asked to do doesn't seem like a chore. You know, it doesn't seem like I'm forced to do this. You're doing this because you want to do it. You want to be here and you see the impact that this activity, this action has on your relationship or has on the industry or your company, right? Or the way that you do business. So I think that if we really want to see this change be done, the industry as a whole has to make a heart change that will trickle down and greatly affect the lives of the people we serve and the employees that work in it. What are some things that keep you inspired, even if the going gets tough? I'm going to continue to create a legacy. I think that, you know, just watching my dad losing people young, I think that I have a a chance here to really write my own narrative, being an independent firm owner, right? Being an entrepreneur, helping people change the trajectory of their lives. I think that that keeps me motivated, right? And then changing the complexion of wealth and what that means. And then I would say, I think that it's about encouraging the people that are along the journey with you, 
right? Whether they're in front or behind you. And one of the things that I kind of chant to myself, and I feel like it's a responsibility for me, is this phrase called push-pull. So my responsibility as somebody who is going onward to greatness is to push the people that are ahead of me while pulling the people that are behind me. And I think that that's a huge motivator, quote unquote, for me, because it allows me to see the change that is being done. Like if you're doing it, continue to do it, continue to be great at whatever it is that you're working on. And if you want an opportunity, I'm here to help trailblaze that path to allow your journey to be a little easier. Right. So I think about that as well. Desarte, thank you for your motivational words for this inspirational episode. It's been wonderful having you on the show. Thank you so much, Jim. Thanks again to Deserte Yarnway of Burknell Financial Group for being on the show today and sharing his story about how the RIA path gave him the freedom to succeed on his own. Next week, we'll be talking to Jeremiah Winters of Solomon and Ludwin to hear about how he juggles his responsibilities as a working parent with being there for all his clients' needs. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Portfolio. If you like the show, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe today. For more resources on all the latest topics advisors face, visit TDAI.com and click on Insights.